Hello and welcome to the Global Business Alliance's August Trade Policy Podcast. My name is Daniel Neff from GBA's advocacy team, and I'm joined by our friends Michael Lightman and Doug Bell from EY. Today we'll be looking at several key policy developments for GBA members. We'll start with procurement, what's happening on Capitol Hill, including the Senate's passage of the Bipartisan Infrastructure Package, how the business community is responding to the Biden administration's trade policy thus far, and close with some thoughts on carbon border adjustments. As we walk through these topics, one theme among others I'll ask Michael and Doug to provide insight on is some of the contradictions in these policy developments. For example, addressing climate change versus human rights concerns with key green suppliers. So first, let's talk about the procurement space and the Biden administration's recent executive order on Buy America and the following notice of proposed rulemaking. The new rulemaking calls for an immediate domestic content increase to 60% and an eventually phased increase target to reach 75%. It also applies enhanced price preferences to select critical products and components identified by the critical supply chain review and the pandemic supply chain strategy. While not all GBA members are immediately impacted or operate in the industry sectors covered in the initial report, it is prudent for executives and government affairs professionals to monitor the subsequent industrial-based report due out in February 2022. Additionally, the bipartisan infrastructure package includes legislation that would extend by America requirements to manufactured products and infrastructure projects. So what can you tell me about the timeline here and what does it mean for procurement moving forward? Well, thanks, Daniel. And uh, again, it's great to be back and uh, looking forward to our conversation. So I think you gave a really good sort of background on you know, developments in government procurement. Um, I think one of the really interesting things about this is sort of how the administration is really sending uh, what I would describe as mixed messages. So on one hand, uh, uh, Biden administration pulled out of the Trump um, government procurement agreement or GPA renegotiation petition that it had filed. Uh, that's a good sign, right? It means that they're you know, not looking to, at least in the immediate term, renegotiate the U.S.'s international um, commitments. Uh, and I don't think there's any question they've used, I would sort of more modulated language when, it, when they're talking about government procurement. Um, and I would also add that, you know, if you look at the language that they and Congress have used uh, when discussing government procurement, they've really spoken about adhering to the U.S.'s international obligations. So I think that's sort of a, a signal, um, sort of more traditional approach that the U.S. has taken. That said, though, I think if you just outlined, they're obviously making steps to uh, reduce exemptions, tighten up federal procurement, and really put more of an emphasis on the purchase of U.S. produced products. Um, and when you really, you know, examine the language closely that they've been using, uh, it's they don't preclude uh, revisiting those same international obligations. So. I think it's probably safe to say at this point that this is really a work in progress uh, and the administration as it seeks to sort of balance what I would characterize as its more protectionist impulses, uh, pro-labor tendencies on government procurement uh, with its relationships uh, with allies uh, and the larger goal of building a coalition um, to really take on uh, in the case what the administration has identified as China, which they see as sort of the big challenge in the international trade space. I don't know, Michael, you probably have some thoughts on this as well. Yeah, thank you, Doug. And Daniel, also thank you and Global Business Alliance for having us again. It's great to be back, as Doug said. Yeah, so so I think, Doug, you hit on a lot of key points, and thank you. I think what one of the things we're seeing in the what to do on the ground space is companies are further reevaluating their overall sourcing for U.S. government procurement. 
This is an entitled entailed more honing on inter internal controls for procurement metrics and the requirements for increased compliance considerations, such as rules of origin with emphasis on content requirements to ensure sufficient qualifications should there be audits against the new provisions and review of sourcing options as well that may ultimately be used in final product domestic content determinations. We, we fully expect that with these new boundaries and rules, if you will, that customs and also the government will look for uh, the compliance to be met and therefore typically one should expect that there could be some increases in the audit space. And so this is this area is especially challenging for companies that have developed a multinational component sourcing model over the past decade or two. So the use of global trade management software demand and competencies has significantly increased to provide reliable data and determinations for origin and content requirements and can be tied into a company's ERP system to be matched with the contractual requirements as they keep changing. And this is shown to be critical in today's era of moving product targets, excuse me, procurement targets of products. So Daniel, I hand back to you. Great, so it kind of sounds like the administration will be taking more measures to further tighten U.S. procurement. If and when do you expect that to happen? Well, you know, that's a great question, Daniel. You know, I think the administration realizes that this is very unpopular with U.S. partners and allies. Um, and I think for the time being is reluctant to really poke them in the eye, so to speak, sort of giving back to, you know, what they think is the real big game out there, which is vis-a-vis -vis China. Um, uh, however, you know, that said, you know, the administration has made it very clear it has a it has a labor centered preference, has a preference for a labor centered trade policy and government procurement is very popular with that constituency as a way to sort of increase demand for domestically U.S. domestically uh, produced products. So I would certainly not rule out, uh, you know, that the administration will revisit uh, its international obligations at some point. But I think what will happen first is they'll look to see how the, you know, with the assumption that the infrastructure bill, which I know we're going to talk a little bit about later, does go through, uh, that spending moves into the system. Uh, and I think they'll look to see how much of that is, you know, being captured by U.S. Uh, manufacturers. And, you know, if that number is really significant and, you know, the U.S. is operating at capacity, that'll take a little bit of some of the, the sort of the policy pressure off of, you know, renegotiating that. But conversely, if, if, it, if, if there's real concerns that this is, you know, the U.S. tax dollars are really fancying, um, you know, purchases from other countries, that pressure will increase. So I think we're going to have to wait and see what happens with that. Back to you, Great. Daniel. Great. So speaking of infrastructure spending, the Senate recently passed its bipartisan infrastructure package, including $550 billion for investments in traditional infrastructure such as roads, ports, bridges, and freight. So what do you guys think this investment means for trade and how will this address the United States competitiveness abroad and with China? And what do you see as a path forward uh, in the House for this kind of legislation? Yeah, thank you, Daniel. I think there's a lot to sort of unpack here in terms of what's in the spending bill. And while there's nothing explicit regarding trade itself that is contained in the legislation, there are a number of very practical impacts that this should have to help remove barriers to trade. So of course, this includes the obvious and, and the needed improvements to our US ports and roads and infrastructure, which supports flows and supply chain linkages, all the way from raw materials and intermediate manufacturers, you know, through to the finished product packaging for ultimate shipment to end consumer markets, whether here or even abroad with, with trying to improve our exports. 
But the higher levels of spending for so-called soft infrastructure should also help. And this includes ongoing focus and further investments with customs facilitation of trade efforts, as well as increased digitalization of US trade logistics across both the private and public sector. In other words, all of the tools and technology that both the private industry side and US government is using is really starting to come to bear. But in the meantime, we have a lot more to, to cover talking about what's in the infrastructure bill, and we'll come to some of that in just a minute. I think, Doug, you have some additional points to add here. Well, yeah, and you know, Daniel kind of queried us at the top about, you know, what are some of the contradictions that are sort of starting to emerge as you know, the U.S. is the administration goes through this policy. And I think this is sort of another area because on one hand, you clearly have uh, the goal, the administration's goal rapidly and efficiently upgrading U.S. competitiveness. Climate mitigation is an important part um, of the infrastructure bill. And, um, you know, that sort of desire to get that spending up and going runs into the kind of restrictions that we were just talking about on the government procurement side um, and how that money could be spent. So, you know, this is where I think some of the challenges between sort of aspirationally what the administration would like to do is going to run into the reality, which is how the private sector operates, how it sources, how it makes its own decisions are going to start to start showing up a bit. Great, thank you, Doug. So what does this infrastructure package mean, given that we still have significant barriers in the form of Section 232 and Section 301 tariffs? Well, you know, sort of continuing the theme, Daniel, you know, we've spoken uh, and actually in, in past discussions um, with the group about the relationship between the infrastructure bill, government procurement, and how, um, you know, increased purchases of U.S. steel and aluminum through the, that, that spending uh, may create some negotiating space um, for the administration and the 232 negotiations, particularly with the EU. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that you know we're seeing the um, you know the the timeline that's been announced for the 232 negotiations with the EU is in November. Uh, it's not coincidence that that's we at that point we expect to have that infrastructure bill. Um, so I think when you sort of add in the recent government procurement announcements, I think that scenario really, um, I, I, I think, holds water. And I, I think, you know, we're going to have to see how it plays out. But I expect that it's the nexus between those three pieces that's going to play itself out. Yeah, and Doug, I think I'd just like to add, I mean, from, from a practical perspective, you know, the ongoing 232 tariffs and potential removal or partial removal at some point present barriers to many companies for planning, or, and also further exacerbating the operational certainty that they face. So what we've seen is long lead time products, such as certain type of line pipe for the energy sector, as an example, has resulted in both foreign production delays and increased costs due to the tariffs, which is causing a domino effect in costs and project financial investment decisions, especially in very large scale construction projects, whether it's a new chemicals plant expansion at a refinery or really anywhere else in the large manufacturing facilities that are necessary to really uh, if you will, move the needle with bringing production back into the United States. And a lot of the components that are subject to 232, of course, in steel and aluminum, as well as some of the a large number of items subject to the 301 tariffs coming from China, as well as we, we've seen a few of the other 301 actions, have impacted a number of companies making these decisions. So 
What we've seen is that certain trade programs, such as the U.S. Foreign Trade Zone program itself, can actually provide cash flow savings through deferrals of the duties, helping to align profit realization against the landed costs of goods sold. And in some instances, the FTZ program can even provide some permanent relief of certain types of merchandise that may remain in the foreign trade zone until these punitive tariffs may ultimately be fully removed. But this is very limited to the production equipment imported for building a manufacturing facility itself. However, there are nuances in the rules that, that can be used within the legal construct for companies to make this investment in the U.S. while navigating through the tariffs. And really the value of the projects that are so sizable uh, and using the strategy for that I just mentioned uh, may really help accelerate an investment decision for a facility that's relying on some of these foreign sourced items that are still subject to 232 or 301 tariffs until we see an increase ultimately in the domestic production uh, that's trying to come back online in the United States, for example, in steel or in other subsectors, or even just for prices to stabilize on the global stage. And of course, the pandemic itself and the impacts on supply chain are, are exacerbating some of those, those those issues itself. Yeah, and Daniel, you also asked about 301 tariffs. I, I think the story there is uh, more complicated, um, and it's uh, really harder to envision you know, a wholesale uh, reduction or significant reduction of those, uh, in part because, you know, resolution of those tariffs is really tied to U.S.-China relations. And I, I think as well aware, those have are not on a good trajectory uh, and continue to be very tense. Um, and, you know, it's sort of unlikely, it's a little hard to envision sort of a negotiated outcome in the near to medium term um, that would allow, that would see China making the sort of structural changes the so-called phase two uh, issues um, that, you know, would be allowed for sort of the wholesale reduction of tariffs. Um, I think what is more likely is that we'll see a, a sort of a more targeted approach, uh, beginning with a, I would, what I would characterize as a reinvigorated exception process, um, you know, where they will no, like, no doubt look at, um, you know, more specific select areas where tariffs can be reduced that really fit outside of sort of the strategic framework um, that originally motivated these 301 tariffs. Um, and so, you know, I, I think we'll see, you know, a more selective approach. Um, you know, USTR has been, uh, I think, signaled in a couple different ways. The GSA critique that was a report that came out, they basically endorsed it, saying, yeah, we need to do this a little bit differently. Um, they also just announced uh, or expected to announce in the next day or so that they're going to look at COVID related, um, you know, PPE exemptions. So, you know, the, the, it's kind of getting teed up for a more selective approach. Um, I, I would caution, though, that just as they're willing to sort of take tariffs off, I would not be surprised if, in, again, certain select strategic areas that there may be a reconsideration of whether certain tariffs should even be higher or that there may be some concerns. So I don't think this is a one-way street. Um, I think firms should be aware that there could be, you know, depending again, very sector specific, very product specific, but it could um, could play both ways. Um, the other last point I would just make about this is that I do think there is sort of a greater awareness in administration about the role of, you know, tariffs are played on intermediate inputs and the cost to manufacturers here in the US. Again, sort of the one of those inherent contradictions and in sort of policy and protection, and this one's sort of an overhang from the last administration. But I think they'll, I think 
you know, if, if your company is in, in that position where you're importing goods from China, intermediate goods that are used for your manufacturing, I think this administration will probably, whether it's the exemption process or otherwise, will probably be taking a more favorable look at those types of issues as well. Yeah, Doug, I, I completely agree here with the points you've just made. And, and as we've discussed, and I know it has been covered with the GBA membership, the Section 301 issues are extremely complex. And there could be a multiple simultaneous actions path that companies may want to consider taking at this juncture because obviously the tariffs remain in place and they didn't go away with the change in administration. So, you know, first, one of the things we would note is that the continued focus on supply chain and the manufacturing platform shifts, if not back to the US, but rather to another country outside of China, that permit a change in the country of origin, which limits or removes the application of Section 301 tariffs to the US importer. A number of companies use the strategy towards the last year or two of the Trump administration, but it remains effective today. And in fact, from a business certainty perspective, CBP has issued and continues to receive a number of ruling requests to confirm a wide range of partial to full shift of manufacturing into either Thailand, Taiwan, Vietnam, and other countries in the region. And also there's even scenarios where final assembly or minor completion may take place actually back in China before the last point of shipment to the United States, but still result in certain goods no longer being subject to 301. So that's one area that we've seen that companies should be evaluating, and it doesn't fit every scenario or even within product lines, perhaps even certain models. But nevertheless, there are things that can be done incrementally using that strategy. The second scenario that we've seen, situations where moving manufacturing just simply isn't feasible. So what we are seeing is a renewed focus on component sourcing options and considerations for how firms could start planning or preparing for a renewed exemption process. As we all know, the, the exemption process itself uh, and then the rules as the additional list of tariffs came out was very <laughs> sort of every morning's next day's news to pay attention to, but nevertheless, there was processes there. But then the exemption process dried up for, to a point. And now, we do see the administration recognizing that there may be a need to resume that process. So monitoring of the US trade representatives actions and further analysis around the 301 impacts is vital to companies to, uh, to be sure that they all are also understanding uh, what's happening uh, with the process itself. And then entries that are being filed today that are subject still to these punitive tariffs. Make sure you're monitoring clearly the timelines for post-entry declaration refund options. There are a number of different things potentially that could be done to preserve your rights. That requires a whole different conversation, uh, but nevertheless one that many companies listening to this podcast may have some awareness of. Well, thanks for that insight, guys. And so given these standing questions on China, what are the implications of the increasing number of administration measures and legislation targeting concerns like Chinese forced labor? Well, Daniel, you know, that's a good point to raise because I, I think it's, you know, heretofore it's been sort of concentrated in uh, textiles, tomato products. But, you know, the more recent um, finding kind of bringing polysilicon into it, uh, you know, a, a real precursor product for, you know, solar panels and the like, shows that um, basically anything that's being manufactured in this, that part of the of China is potentially at risk. So you really want to understand your supply chain um, because, you know, these concerns, I think, are have a lot of traction, particularly on the Hill. 
but even within the administration. And so you receive more of these types of bills. Uh, it's sort of like a, a one a week type uh, uh, exercise. Um, so, you know, companies are really, as I mentioned, going to have to focus on their supply chain. This is going to create, you know, the potential for some real compliance costs uh, and reputational risk for firms as well. So, um, and it's not just the 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 U.S. I mean, the U.S. efforts are sort of very much focused on China. EU is doing a lot of work. They have new mandatory disclosure uh, regulations coming down the the pike. Those are not necessarily specifically focused on forced labor in China, but on forced labor more broadly or environmental issues. So, it seems that there really is sort of a, a subtraction for these of ESG issues, um, how they're going to impact trade. Um, so again, I think this is going to have to be something that's going to have to move up the, uh, you know, the agenda uh, for companies. They're going to have to start paying more attention and figuring out sort of the systems type of things that they're going to need to do to meet these new types of reporting requirements or compliance requirements. Yeah, and I think one other point, Doug, to add to that, you know, and we mentioned earlier digitalization of trade data and the ability of the U.S. government and U.S. customs to use a lot of the elements on on the customs declarations and the and the information provided from the through all, all the way from transport all the way into de- U.S. importation is a way to monitor some of this. So one of the things that we've seen clients and companies really grappling with is how these measures really can come into play and things that they should be doing now with it's very clear that it's established that the focus on the on the forced labor issue is going to remain and needs to be monitored. So what we are seeing is a broader look at the supply chain itself from an oversight internal control perspective as well as looking at and probably in instituting stronger uh, SOPs around the import process. So making sure operational procedures are clear, making sure that the awareness for the compliance commitments and quite honestly, the risk are being followed. And this is very similar to what we saw with the Customs and Trade Partnership Against Terrorism following 9-11, where companies needed to really focus on and in really intertwine some of the non-traditional trade arena areas of data and monitoring and controls to understand impacts that could happen to flow of their products. And that's what's happening now. And so seeing that the acknowledgement of some of the subcomponent and the material sourcing from suppliers that could have ramifications for forced labor has emerged, has really put that focus back into the compliance realm. And and this is a heavy lift. Uh, Right now, companies are operating, of course, to get goods to market. There's a lot of complications, of course, through supply chain and other restrictions with pandemic. But with it, though, is also the risk of the concern from a non-compliance violation issue that could pop up and cause issues for an organization. So there needs to be a proper investment and also not just in procedures, but also in systems. Because again, as I mentioned, the data is there for the government. And therefore, one of the things that we're starting to see is that there is an increasing risk of a customs and border protection withhold release order uh, being put out. And just to give some statistics quickly, you know, e- the U.S. government and customs has issued that just at the end of June, the CBP has published some statistics on the WT- WROs or the withhold release orders, and there were 50 active orders with approximately 700 shipments that were detained and there were a number of findings issued. Those are, of course, are going through a process to get to final resolution, and that can take some time. But monitoring some of those statistics is important in understanding the risk there. 
and no doubt that those numbers were as of the end of June. So this has picked up in the past two months as Customs has made clear it will be increasing its focus on the forced labor monitoring and enforcement arena. Thanks, Michael. So switching gears a little bit, our members are increasingly concerned that, with the exception of resolving several disputes with the EU, that there hasn't really been a lot of progress on trade policy. Are you seeing the same concerns with your clients? Yeah, thanks, Daniel. We are. I mean, what we're hearing from our clients is really the same. They are, for the most part, glad to see the progress with the EU that we've seen in the past couple of months on a, on a wide number of matters, but of course would like to see a more expedited timeline than what is currently viewed as a very cautious uh, slow walk from the United States. At least in the perspective of the EU, there seems to still be uh, you know, a timeline here to, for some trade, horse trading, if you will, on some of the components to get to a, a more productive and conducive uh, trade partnership between, you know, the two environments or the two the countries and the EU uh, union itself. And we're not quite there yet. So in terms of where concerns exist, you know, what we're sensing from companies is that they are anxious to see firmer ground on trade terms. And also this would include a potential agreement with the UK more definitive actions towards the US and China trade agreement itself with clear movement towards phase two in a way that is meaningful for companies to plan accordingly, as well as seeing significant progress, of course, towards World Trade Organization reform uh, and broader mutual agreement on the issues of the past five years that the trade space has envisioned. Yeah, you know, and, and Michael, I'll sort of speak to that in terms of, you know, what I see here in Washington, D.C. and, you know, how companies are sort of, engaging with the administration and it's it's pretty similar in the same in the sense of those those frustrations um you know, there's been a number of high profile letters uh, on china and 301 tariffs uh, that have gone out over the last couple of weeks um you know that kind of speaking to the harm to the u.s economy you know, what is the administration doing on trade promotion authority um and i think in general the administration's claim that they're sort of studying these type of issues uh, is starting to wear thin with the business community. Um, and so, you know, for example, while I think, um, you know, the business community recognizes the challenges that China presents, uh, the absence of what I would describe as any sort of meaningful strategy uh, to address that, whether it's engagement with China itself, whether it's things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership and, you know, trading with the, the region as a whole, um, and sort of the, uh, what is really sort of the continuation of the last administration's approach is a concern. Um, so I, I think what's going to be sort of really interesting, though, is I, I think this next month, September, is, is, is there's things are going to sort of pop on that front. Um, you know, the, the, the administration has been out in force over the last several weeks, um, you know, hitting their version of the Sunday morning talk show uh, circuit for at least for trade purposes. Uh, and, you know, talking about, you know, we, we're listening to you, we understand we need to be doing these things sort of a holding, but sort of signaling that, you know, soon they're going to be coming out with stuff. Um, and then maybe just the best indicator. Uh, uh, just yesterday, I saw a uh, uh, U.S.-China Business Council send out their, you know, listing of events coming up. And in the month of September, it is chock full of senior Chinese economic officials who want to talk to the U.S. business communities, setting up the seminars. So, the, the intel the Chinese have is probably pretty good. And they, they recognize that, you know, the U.S. administration is going to be coming out with stuff. They want to be getting their story out there. So I think we should all be looking, have some, a little bit, some expectations that we'll be getting um, some more clarity on the U.S. approach 
in this coming month, you know, we talked about uh, the exemption process. These type of things will probably start to see more detail, uh, if not in September, probably in October. Um, as I think the administration realizes it sort of needs to kind of get out there and uh, they're losing control of the narrative if they don't really start doing that soon. So Doug, if the administration picks up its activity in the trade space, where do you think companies should be focused? Well, I think, you know, we've sort of hit on the, the big issues, but um, I think, you know, monitoring the negotiating process, and the outcomes with the EU in the near term, uh, and then, of course, China, as we've been discussing, although I think that one's just going to be a lot harder because there's a lot of noise and it gets kind of caught up in, you know, Hill legislation, but really sort of keeping abreast of developments there. Um, and as I suggested, I think that there will be some concrete, you know, procedural process guidance that will be coming out uh, that companies could start to take advantage of. Yeah, thanks, Doug. I think yeah, those are good points. And just one other area that we've actually already seen some interesting movements in that companies should be closely following would be the recent example of the notice of proposed rulemaking that Customs published on July 6th, right after the U.S. Independence holiday, that was proposed to apply certain tariff-based rules of origin for all non-preferential origin determinations for goods imported from Canada or Mexico and also certain origin determinations for government procurement. So this has to do with a issue that Customs has had for many years and uh, what was part of how origins determined. So let me, let me just unpack that just a little bit more for the audience. So currently, country of origin for marking purposes, when you look at a product's packaging and you see the, the, the origin of the product itself for your awareness as a consumer, is determined by tariff shift for products from Canada or Mexico, but by non-preferential origin rules for other purposes, such as the Section 232 or Section 301 topics earlier, or for government procurement as well. And that in that those cases, it's determined using the customs substantial transformation test. So there is a difference here that a tariff shift truly is looking at the harmonized tariff system and looking at determining if a finished product has made a true tariff shift by a defined set of rules showing that it's made that it was moved from those headings into a new or different heading whereas the substantial transformation test is looking at a different set of of parameters it's very important to understand and in many cases both the tariff shift which was originally developed for nafta is now is typically used under the us mca agreement and also the substantial transformation test can be met However, there are specific cases that it is not always the point that they are met together. And presently, a good with Chinese materials may meet Mexico origin for marking, in other words, from the tariff shift, but fail a substantial transformation requirement to show that it's been truly transformed to a new and different article of commerce, and it could still remain subject to Section 301 duties. Again, the underlying Chinese materials, such as a component, let's say in, in like a little motor that's used in a vehicle door for the window, as an example. There's a wide number of rulings that can be cited. So as proposed, the new rules would actually negate the protective nature of the 301 duties, because in that case, it could actually turn out that the product would qualify simply under tariff shift and that Chinese materials moved into Mexico and manufactured into the product could make it to the US and could be competing with a US similar product of manufacture. 
So of course the outcome is going to be both favored and disfavored depending on industry and products and is being evaluated by the trade industry presently as we are, are making this discussion right now. Uh, and the reason is that the the proposed rulemaking is subject to further comments at this time through the first week of September, at which point there, there will be a review by customs and potentially uh, another round of comments, or there could be uh, that they decide to move forward with proposed regulations. And so it should be monitored very closely. And in particular, we see the that the technology products and pharmaceuticals would be disadvantaged. And the reason is because they are they typically meet substantial transformation but not tariff shift and the tariff shift rules and thus would lose their USMCA qualification under the proposed rulemaking as it stands right now. So with the extent that the extended comment period expiring September 7th, as I mentioned, this matter should be closely watched into the fall as it further develops. Daniel, back to you. Great, thank you, Michael. Um, so let's finish up in the environmental space. What is the US up to on car carbon border adjustments? You know, we've recently seen developments on the Hill noting the proposal, as well as international interest recently in Canada. Well, you know, Daniel, this is sort of a this is a political question as well, because um, Democrats recognize uh, that if they're going to push the, you know, to decarbonize the economy, uh, you know, promote clean energy, um, they'll have a problem, political problem and an economic problem. Uh, if there's no way to protect sort of impacted uh, domestic industries from foreign competition. Uh, it's the same problem the EU has. <laughs> the, the greater challenge for the US, however, is that um, we don't have a pricing, uh, we don't price carbon. For most, we do it at the state level in some instances, but there's no federal uh, national price for carbon. Um, so, you know, this has resulted in, you know, kind of various proposals um, probably the one that's the most prominent is the Senator Coons legislation. Um, that, and in his case, it's to uh, calculate the increased costs of U.S. regulations uh, and then essentially impose a border tax uh, to uh, address the discrepancy with you know, other uh, jurisdictions. So understand how much these regulations measures are costing U.S. firms, somehow calculate that, uh, and then come up with a tax to compensate at the border. Um, even just describing to you in that fashion, I think you can appreciate just how difficult that's going to be. Uh, and it, I think the whole exercise seems very complicated and have to wonder whether it's even workable. Um, so it's, it's actually a little bit one of those inherent contradictions that we were sort of talking about up front. Uh, one of the interesting things though, is as these things are starting to play out is that when the administration is confronted with a choice between, let's say, um, sort of addressing labor concerns, you know, growing the U.S. economy versus climate change, at least to date, they've sort of leaned in towards addressing labor and growth issues. So I'm thinking of polysilicon uh, is a good example where, you know, on a climate change basis, you know, cheaper, more accessible polysilicon stimulates the use and production of uh, solar panels. That's a good climate thing. Ran up against issues of human rights and forced labor and uh, ergo cheaper labor uh, and sort of the, the competitive pressures that, that puts on you, you know, not many, but the, the, the few polysilicon producers that we have in this country. So 
again, another, you, you can't assume that there's these choices are very, they're not clean choices for the administration. And so we'll have to sort of see how they, these things sort of play itself out. But carbon pricing at the border for the US is gonna be really complicated. And I don't think we've, we've sort of gotten to a workable solution yet. I know, Michael, you, 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 you've been seeing this as well. What do you think? I have, and, and I think your polysilicon is, is a great example, but it's probably one of many. And I think, you know, again, climate and trade is clearly complex. And I think, Doug, as you, as you also earlier stated, the EU has progressed a path forward that seems to be setting you know, a what lies ahead for businesses to plan for specifically to the EU trade flows they may have. But that's you know working from what they have explained in their carbon border adjustment plans and how that's going to ultimately find its way forward. They are somewhat um, forward thinking in getting that process out and getting ahead of maybe other regions doing it with all other factors going on. But from the US perspective, what we're seeing presently are companies monitoring the various developments around the globe. Again, the EU leading, but also seeing what we're hearing now with legislation potential, as you mentioned. And it does still seem a bit early to be able to truly model potential impacts and adjustments that might be necessary at this time for companies to implement. Uh, but it certainly seems to warrants attention, and we are hearing more and more interest in understanding, you know, the social obligations and responsibilities companies have for, you know, the climate issues and can, thinking about it. So one consideration that I have seen uh, some of my clients utilize is seeming to follow how companies around adjusted around the trade war impacts previously, and I discussed some of those other uh, earlier as well. In other words, considering moving away from a one-world production where products flow all over the place from one main platform, but rather moving back to a regionalized production. And in the trade war context, that helped to phrase some of the punitive tariff issues that we saw between uh, the US and China or the US and the EU by being able to have alternative uh, sourcing into certain regions where needed. Of course, slightly redundant on your manufacturing platforms, but becoming more important. And as I think one of the things we're seeing both from climate change and also from the pandemic impacts on supply chain is that there may need to be a need to bring back this regionalization approach in, in your manufacturing platforms or supply platforms to manage that. And because of this potential taxation for movements that may occur depending upon where the, the heavier carbon footprint could be or the way that certain regional jurisdictional governments are going to imply or apply taxes into these situations. It's important to be looking at that now and again, hard to model, but certainly starting to take shape that might be in a way that also works to contribute to reducing carbon and taxes at the same time. Great. Well, thank you, Michael and Doug, so much for taking the time to sit down with me and talk trade policy. It is always uh, really good in, uh, to hear from your expertise. So thank you very much. Our pleasure. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Daniel. Great to be with you again.